Dr. Azadeh Khatibi is a fellowship-trained and board-certified ophthalmologist. She was a Regents Scholar at UCLA and graduated Phi Beta Kappa with highest departmental honors in molecular cell developmental biology. She began her career as an actor while simultaneously pursuing studies at one of the top medical schools in the country, University of California, San Francisco, and the Joint Medical Program, which only accepted 12 people per year. She also got her master's in public health and a master's in health and medical sciences, both from UC Berkeley. She completed internal medicine internship and residency at UC Irvine, where she was chosen chief resident. She finished vitreoretinal medicine and surgery at UC San Diego. Dr. Katibi is also a filmmaker and actress. She acted in and helped produce the feature Window Horses with Sandra Oh, which was shortlisted for Academy Award nomination. She was a lead producer on the film Sinjar, a narrative feature about the Yazidi genocide of 2014. Her acting credits The Truth is Hard to Find, directed by Darren Aronofsky. She served as the consultant on Netflix's The Magic School Bus Rides Again and was writing finalist in the Women in Film PSA program. In addition, Dr. Katibi is also a scientist, having discovered and named an eye disease and also a published author of short story and poetry. She also volunteers as a mindfulness and highly gifted and highly sensitive mentor. Most recently, Dr. Katibi has become a vocal advocate for medical freedom and ethics. She's sued the state of California and the Medical Board of California in two lawsuits regarding First Amendment rights violations of physicians. This fall, Dr. Katibi testified in front of members of Congress's Select Subcommittee on COVID in Washington, D.C. Whew, man, I'm so excited for you guys to listen to this episode. We go so deep and Azadeh really, really just breaks it down for us and warns us of the dangers of censorship and how we really need to be using our voices right now to truth tell and to advocate for ourselves, our communities, and and really lean into the moment. She also held space for me and um, really allowed me to share my story and be vulnerable. And you guys will see that passion come through as I've been uh, sitting with this episode over the past couple of days. It's been quite um, an integration process and a lot has moved for me. Um, As much of what I share in this episode, I I haven't shared with many people. So um, just really grateful to her for holding space for that. And, um, and, and also for dreaming with me. And I'm super excited for you guys to hear this episode. Stay tuned for ways to connect with her and to follow her story and really see a courageous leader in action. Enjoy. Azadeh, welcome to the Decolonizing Healthcare podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Diana. I'm really excited and hope I can be of service to the audience and uh, have a great conversation with you that will serve. Yes, yes. I've been very excited for this interview, I have to say, uh, for so many reasons. And um, your 
advocacy and activism, especially here in California, has been so inspiring. And before we dive into all of that, I would love for you to share with the audience a little bit about yourself, where you come from, what uh, drives you, and how you arrived um, to the space and the work you're doing today. Uh, sure. Thank you. I, um, you know, certainly when I, you look back and you see where you're at now, the advocacy I'm doing in California, I can see how my life, even from my early childhood, has affected the person who I am today. So I was born in Iran, um, and I was born right at the time of the Iranian Revolution when uh, the Shah left, and um, people thought they were making pro- progress by bringing Ayatollah Khomeini in, but instead we kind of reverted back to medieval uh, rule in a very even sociopathic system. Um, and uh, my name Azad means freedom because at that time people, you know, the ideas of freedom and liberty were very much in vogue, and they thought they were going to get freedom. But instead, what ended up happening is this authoritarian regime that has now been there for forty years. Uh, fortunately, we got out. My dad, who uh, realized that he, he thought that there wasn't going to be much opportunity for his two daughters. Uh, started thinking about how they were going to get out of Iran. And um, what ended up happening is um, my grandmother was very, very ill in America. And they called up my dad and they said, if you want to see her, she's uh, has a cancer diagnosis. And if you want to see her, you got to get over here now. So really long travels, travails to kind of get to America. And when we did, I was about six and we thought that, like I thought growing up, that that was all behind us. Iran, where I felt so, I mean, I liked Iran. I felt comfortable there. But there was always a part of me that felt like the 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 the, the false exterior life that people lived and we lived, right? Where you wear the hijab when you go outside, when you're very careful about what you say, when you're afraid, or my parents would say, don't say this to your teachers. You know, we don't want to get... You know, reported and of course plenty of people did that like don't say that we have parties don't say this right so then you it's like this false front and then your inner life that's very toxic for a person right and you see the consequences of that in Iran now in the in the in the populace but I thought that was all behind us you know that was all behind me and I came to America I was a super smart girl I learned English in like two three months and I was at the top of my class and I thought it was done but unfortunately uh, what I've now found out is that these adverse childhood events, they follow you um, and they manifest physically, emotionally, um, uh, deeply, especially if you're a more sensitive person. And I'm a very sensitive person. So mm-hmm. what ended up happening is I was doing great, but the immigrant experience itself was very shocking for my family as well. And that quite created a lot of friction and tension. And I still was doing great academically. I uh, went to UCLA. I was a regent scholar there. I had to end up deciding, am I going to become an actress or a doctor? And I decided I'm going to be a doctor because it was very, very driven by uh, principles of doing the right thing. And uh, I loved biology, loved it, but I also loved people. And to me, medicine seemed like something that you could integrate both of these things together and really go to work every day and help someone like what better thing could there be to do with your life than go to work every day and help someone guaranteed. And you were generally guaranteed, generally an, a job that you could find. If you, if, especially if you were mobile, you could pretty much find a job and you had 
some level of financial security. So just for all those reasons, it made sense. I went to a special program, the joint medical program between Berkeley UCSF. It only accepted 12 people a year. And the goal was to train humanistic physician leaders. And while I was there, I also got my master's in public health because I was learning about individual health and the, how to, to, to create individual health, at least, you know, through the Western medicine model, which now as a result of what I've learned, I don't necessarily think is the way it's practiced right now is the best, but mm-hmm. we can talk about that later. I was learning that, but I also was interested in like, well, on a population level, how do we create change? How do we, uh, you know take care of heart disease? What are the, and what about the behaviors of people? So then I got, since I was in the program with UC Berkeley, I got my master's in public health at UC Berkeley as well. And I got another master's in health and medical sciences. I think in like seven years or six or seven years, maybe I think seven years, I had two master's degrees, a medical degree, and I had a baby. Like oh, I was just oh, work, wow. work, work, go, go, go. Um, I was learning so much. Um, is really not necessarily the best thing for my system, right? The mind body mm-hmm. system, but I was doing it. And I uh, ended up getting into residency. I did an ophthalmology residency. I uh, then went on to fellowship, uh, uh, vitreo retinal surgery. So I'm a surgeon. And uh, I was chosen as chief resident. I got the uh, outstanding teacher award uh, both years of fellowship. Like I was good. You know, mm-hmm. I was hard worker, good at my job, but inside I was living with a lot of tension inside. I was living with a lot of anxiety. And also you're working in a system that now I look back and I'm like, it was really toxic. It was oh, yeah. really, really toxic. Like you look back and there's some, some very smart people, but they didn't necessarily have great conflict resolution skills, communication skills, the top down approach that was increasingly becoming prominent in medicine and less autonomy, even for the attending mm-hmm. surgeons, not just the residents and fellows, but even less autonomy and mm-hmm. more pressured environments for the attending surgeons was uh, not good for, I think, medical progress, not good for mm-hmm. patient care. And it wasn't necessarily good for research, in my view, um, like true deep questioning. And it certainly wasn't good for how the people in the system felt and then how they ended up treating patients, right? Mm -hmm. There was a lot less attuned care. And I didn't even know about attuned care before. But I just remember thinking to myself, there's ways that I feel good when I take care of patients. But those are few and far between. And most of the time, it was feeling like there was an automatic way of doing things. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I like to really connect with my patients and have that one-on-one deep connection and talk to them and see where the conversation goes. You're, You're talking about their eye disease, but actually, be talking in addition about their diet and their exercise and their mood and all of those things. And it, it, it affects the patient on multiple levels, but you don't have time for that when you have like a seven minute patient visit. It's terrible. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's interesting because like what you're saying there, all those things, like what's your diet? Like, uh, do you have community? Like what are your spiritual practices or how do you, how do you feel connected? These you know, these things that now, like you said, from the outside after your own journey, which we'll, you know, we can talk about, we'll talk about more that doesn't that sound like that's the way that any doctor patient relationship should be. Yeah, it should. And I think it was a little bit more like that before um, incentives made the doctors change their behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, And before uh, doctors became less independent, right? So now like I think 75% of doctors are working for others instead of being their own boss, right? Wow. So you 
can't even, there's a lot less autonomy in how you spend your time with patients, how much time, uh, uh, what you talk about and what you're supposed to do and your schedule. And so that also affects whether or not you can talk about these things with patients and really have a deep connection with patients. So, um, and then the financial incentives, certainly, because before doctors made more money per patient, now they're making less money per patient. So then they have to cram more and more patients in. Right. And then the system is just creates this normalcy about cramming so many patients in. And then the system, the governmental systems also aren't funding enough doctors to be trained. And so all of these things then lead to a situation where the patient's health isn't prioritized because they're not really, um, unless unless the doctor is really sacrificing themselves yeah. um, and their time away from their family or their own care or their own lives, or then the patient's going to get the short end of the stick. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that actually has become, like you said, pretty normalized. I mean, I know, like, I love this conversation because like, like you're a physician, I'm a, I'm a nurse, you know? So like we definitely can see eye to eye on a lot of things. And I've like seen these, these trends and, and, and what I've seen, especially working in a teaching hospital at UCSF in Oakland, like not just even the residents that come through, but like the physicians that my colleagues and people that I love and cared for, like they're sick themselves, like very, mm, very mm. sick. You know, we're talking about like high stress, no sleep, like, you know, and, and like you said, really extending themselves because they care so much because they're still trying to show up in this way. And it's like how, you know, and, and it's sad because it continues to be like placed on the individual, like, okay, just learn some mindfulness, like, okay, you know, go take this class. And it's like, no, no, like, let's actually really talk about what the issue is, which is this systemic, this deep root rooted systemic issue, right? Isn't it ironic that the actual systems in which we are practicing the healthcare system actually, and even the educational systems that train us are set up for ill health of the nurses and the doctors, et cetera, et cetera. I had this, like, I used to think, oh, you know, maybe I was too idealistic, but actually I don't think it's like, it's the ideal, like, it's not a bad idealistic, it's actually the ideal. I used to think that like, oh, when I go to med school, they're going to teach me how to be like healthier. And they're going to yeah. point out things I'm doing wrong with my health, because they must know, and right. they must be leading great lives. Oh, and then you realize, oh, no, my professor guy is overweight. And you know, for I'm not judging, I'm just saying, right, like, he doesn't exercise. This one is like a t- giant stress ball. This person doesn't have good communication skills yeah. and just, you know, and, and then, you know, then you find out, oh, doctors have a history of throwing instruments in the OR and they couldn't even regulate their emotions. Like, then you oh realize, gosh. oh, the system is super toxic. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I know. And it, it is, it is like this wake up call when you start to see that no, none of your teachers, professors, so like, like you said, through the education system, all the way through uh, your training, and then actually working in the field, like no one is an embodiment of of what they claim to be uh, perpetuating in the world, which is essentially helping others through health and education, right? And it's, it is, and and to me that that didn't become obvious and apparent until I had to go through my own health collapse and, mm. and really dive into, which is, I, and I know you've, you've shared this too, as I, you know, was listening to like interviews that you've done and you went through this also similar kind of health collapse where you had no choice, you know, to, but to prioritize and really explore other modalities to support you in what you're doing. And then it's like, you come through and you're like, 
wait a minute, this is not normal, but it's become so normalized. And then it's like, you can't unsee it after that, you know? Oh oh yeah. Cause yeah, you can't unsee it. And I had to be shocked into realizing, and I knew there were things wrong that I needed to change about my life. I just was like, okay, well, you know, I'll get to it. But I was so busy working also, like I didn't even have time to think right right? when when I'm so busy working and like so emotionally exhausted that like, you don't even have time time to think you don't have time to think, let alone actually make changes. And so I was shocked into it because I got a very serious diagnosis that made me have to stop face death, like look at death Mm. And in the beginning, it was just like, well, what do I do to stay alive? Like in, in the Western medical model, because I didn't know anything else. Um, and then it was, I took me to the depths of anxiety or the heights of anxiety, the depths of this depression, um, where I didn't even see the point of like living anymore, like almost to that point, right? I was just like, what's the point? Like, I don't, I'm not really needed. And the journey out of that has been amazing because I learned what things were not serving me, including my childhood and, and the things I learned in my childhood, the coping mechanisms I learned, and my childhood or what happened in Iran is very much related politically to what happened in America and Europe and what America and Europe did to uh, to Iran or, you know, their strategizing, diplomatic strategizing and deciding not to support, support the Shah, et cetera, mm-hmm. right? So I'm kind of living that... Uh, and and that even goes back beyond that like the 50s and 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 how the CIA did a coup uh, did a coup in Iran so mm-hmm. so I'm kind of the, the consequences of my life are actually partly a consequence of that colonial legacy I'm going to even take it back further and say our sociopathic legacy from 10 15,000 years ago when we were living in these villages and don't quote me on the time, but around 10, 15,000 years ago, when we were living in the villages and the traders, the people who would go between villages on their horses, they had metal instruments. Um, they realized, oh, we could take over these villages, mm-hmm. right? And what are the kinds of people would be the kind of person who would leave their family in their village and go and become a trader, um, T-R-A-D-E-R, right? And and go from, and and be on the road and withstand weather, withstand potential harm. It's the people who are less emotional, who need less downtime, who are less needy of their own families and they can take it. So I would say they're on the less sensitive part of the spectrum. I would say veering toward more sociopathic Mm -hmm. tendencies. And that's the kind of personality that would be like completely fine taking over a village and creating, then then creating this hierarchical system with kingdoms. From my view, we're all living these sociopathic systems from thousands of years ago. And we're seeing it more in like the colonial sense, because those people were then also living out their patterns that they had inherited. Right. right. And so like so then I see what happened to me in Iran, the Iran revolution, the Iran Iraq war uh, that then I remember being bombed as a kid. Wow. Fast forward to when I get sick. And I get a little bit better and I start exploring these things. I go to therapy. I go to therapy for highly sensitive people. Like, and I, I, I find out about my own neuropsychological profile and personality traits and 
how they served me and how they weren't and how my upbringing, like I had maybe learned some things that weren't serving me, like the idea of living in severe anxiety and perfectionism and um, uh, being afraid to disappoint people, all that stuff. I had to do so much work to undo that. Um, and part of that was also learning about the scientific studies associated with early childhood trauma. For example, the adverse childhood event study, um, the ACEs study, which showed that people who are in childhood are exposed to greater and greater numbers of tra more trauma, family member, uh, parents divorcing, sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, a family member becoming incarcerated, et cetera. They didn't specifically ask about war, but I, I, we can kind of extrapolate that being bombed at night would be a childhood trauma that would be valid. Yeah. Um, they are much higher risk of getting heart disease, STDs, not being successful in life, et cetera, mm -hmm. decades later, mm -hmm. getting a heart attack decades later because of these childhood traumas. And like 70% of us are exposed to that. So then learning that stuff and then also learning about the science of the highly sensitive individual, people who feel things deeply, like they tend to be much more intelligent. They tend to have much stronger emotions. They tend to think deeply. They think broadly. Um, and these things can be good, but then of course, if you don't know how to regulate your emotion and you were never taught that, that it can cause that unending cycle of anxiety or depression, et cetera, much, and you feel it more. So I had to unpackage all of this and unpackage my childhood and package history, package anthropology a little bit. Um, and I, uh, went to work with therapy. I started meditating. I started teaching mindfulness to children and adults and, um, cancer patients and uh, decided exercising more, taking care of myself and really trying to go inward. I softened the masculine side of myself and really nurtured more the feminine. I mean, this was a journey, right? And there were ups and downs along it, but overall it's been incredibly powerful and a testament to how you can take a challenge, something really, really difficult in your life and make something amazing out of it, transmuting the negative to something positive, finding that silver lining it's an excellent practice. I also changed my mindset. I went from like kind of a fixed mindset that sometimes like really intelligent people can fall into this fixed mindset that, mm -hmm. that has to be perfect. That I, if I don't do it right the first time, it's not going to, um, it's not going to be correct. And, and, and you kind of are brought, our systems also brought, bring us up in that way, especially the medical system, which is can be uh, emotionally punitive for uh, trainees. Um, uh and by, by learning these skills and then teaching it to others, my life has gotten um, so much better. And that's led to now me being able to be a voice, being able to advocate um, for things that I believe in during this COVID time. Mm, wow. What a journey. And I, I, I think it's such a, a testament to our ability, our innate abilities to heal, you know, with the, with the proper, with, with the proper tools and with the supportive community and, and also just that, uh, that willingness, right. To shift, like you said, that, that fixed mindset and how many, how many people would thrive with, with these tools, but that don't have access to them. Right. Like, like these things cost money, you know, we're talking therapy, learning, like learning mindfulness, like going, learning, whatever types of modalities from different teachers, like you have to have resources to access those. Right. And. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. And I was thinking that to myself, even during my health journey, I was like, well, I'm seeing an acupuncturist and I'm seeing, you know, my regular doctors and I got a second opinion, third opinion, fourth opinion. 
what about the mom who's a single mom who now has traveled with this diagnosis and she's just barely making ends meet? Like, oh my God, part of me is like, I'm so lucky. Thank you, God. Right. But then I'm like, okay, we need to figure out something else. And I love that the internet revolution has enabled people to access people who know and are motivated at least, you know, then there's the whole people, you know, there's the whole group of people who don't know or, or, or aren't motivated to find out or are just kind of passive in their lives. That's a whole nother issue. But um, the, the internet has at least allowed us to gain some more information, connection, online support groups. Um, so that's a little bit helpful. But uh, I mean, you mentioned supportive and support systems. I mean, I I really didn't have a lot of supportive. Um, and I think part of it is also we're not taught to be supportive of one another. Like even in our families, like people don't know the right things to say or, or to how ask to for be help. Yeah, or to ask for help. Um, <laughs> or and 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 how to be there for someone ill. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because we're so productive and this goes back to the colonialist mindset or the sociopathic yes. mindset that right, we're, we're focused on productivity. How can the other person yeah. benefit me? How can I strategize my life to the optimum? Oh, this person is not optimum in my life. And I remember being really sick and I, I'm, I'm disabled from what I had. Um, uh, but I remember like then looking at the streets. And I was like, where are the people in the wheelchairs? I don't see a lot of, I know there's a lot of disabled people in the United States, like 25, 30% or something. Where are they? I was like, oh, they're, they're at home mm-hmm. or they're in institutions or they're just, and it, it, it just made me realize that our viewpoint is so, um, is such that we think that things are, our everyday life is a certain way when in fact, there's lots of people who are suffering behind closed doors. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. Thank you for speaking to that and, and sharing your journey. Um, it's, I think I wish that more, again, more physicians, uh, had your courage. Um, and, and with that, I kind of want to segue into the past three years, which has been quite a journey for all of us in the front lines. Um, and, and could you share and take us back, give us a little context as to, um, how you ended up suing the state of California um, and what was going, yeah, what you kind of went through and what brought you to that process and, um, and why it's important to, why this is important, why the story is needs to be amplified. Because I don't feel that a lot of people know about this, about, about your case, about what's going, even, even the, the, uh, the, the law that was passed in, you know, last year in September of 2020, which, started all of this. So, um, that was very, that was very, that was high in my consciousness when it happened is because I was, uh, paying attention. And so it was very concerning to me. So anyway, I would love for you to just take us there. Sure. So the law that you're referring to is, um, uh, named after bill AB 2098, which is a California bill that was introduced into the assembly and then passed in the, um, California State Senate, and then Governor Gavin Newsom ultimately signed it. Um, but what I ended up doing is I ended up um, with a legal nonprofit and some amazing other amazing plaintiffs suing the state of California uh, for this law. So let's go back in time and, and kind of see what led to me doing this to um, beginning of 2020, when we started getting these reports of this virus. Uh, uh, and I was 
open. I was concerned. It was seeing some pictures coming um, from what was happening in other countries like Italy and the idea, you know, hearing reports of bodies just stacked up. So at first you're concerned and then I had kids and, 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 and so you're concerned about them. You're just trying to get more information. And then in very like late winter, early spring, maybe March, they closed down the schools. They shut, they, 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 they said, you know, we're going to go not have school anymore. So it was uh, kind of good for my kids being more sensitive kids because they kind of got them to rest their nervous systems because the American educational system uh, oh, yeah. can be very toxic to, you know, the 20% of people who are highly sensitive and it can be toxic even to the not highly sensitive kids. Yeah. But that's another conversation. So in a way it gave them some time to like relax their nervous system. And then Fortunately, my children have internet, you know, they had internet access, they were able, they, I heard stories about other kids like having to connect in alleyways, which was ridiculous, like to yeah. Wi-Fi to be able to go to online school. My kids had internet, they had their own rooms, they were able to, uh, you know, kind of have a relaxed time, kind of set their own schedule. And so I was like, okay, the kids are good. By that time, I'd been on like this health thing where I lost 20, I become very sedentary after my illness. And I was exercising every day. And I said, Oh, my God, there's this big shift in our family, but that's not going to affect my exercise. I am in a very disciplined person. I'm a doctor, I have changed my mindset. I am, you know, I'm going to still keep my exercise and my body looks fabulous. And it looks trim and I can move and I'm flexible and I'm fast. And, you know, given the fact that I'm disabled, but like compared to where I'd been before, um, I'm never going to lose this. I'm never going to lose this discipline. COVID is not going to bring me down. Fast forward, I gained 20 pounds during COVID because of the change to my routine, because of the change to, uh, and, and you could say, oh, well, your kids were fine. They're older, but still there was a change and a disruption in the system that then affected me. And I'm going to argue like it affected my metabolic health with this weight gain, right? Mm -hmm. I gained that 20 pounds back again. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, amplify that, right? There's some goods with COVID, right? maybe for the people who are elevated socioeconomic status, right? Right, right. But the downstream effects of all the interventions that we did and the disruptions to our system were not good. And I right. could start, I started seeing this in spring of 2020. And I thought to myself, well, if we're disrupting kids' education, if we're disrupting the family life, what's going to happen? Because in public health school, I had studied, right? When you have an intervention that you start doing, um, and in this case, we're talking about, um, lockdowns and mm -hmm. stopping school there's downstream consequences and there's unintended consequences so you have to like have vision and know and what i was started to see uh was that there was a reactivity happening and i had studied mindfulness by this point i was practicing you know i practice um meditation meditation centering myself every day and i was confused because what i was hearing in the mainstream media and in my feed um from my who now I look back were like very reactive and they were mm -hmm. also following what the mainstream media was saying and reposting those it was very different than like when I would read like a scientific article analyzing you know projected infection for fatality rates and then I started hearing other doctors even doctors who were in leadership in the political sphere in other states saying that people were attacking them I was like what's going on here Right. Like what, what's going on? Like I, my system became confused because at this point, you know, 
I've learned about healthy communication, about transparent transparency and honesty and communication. I expected like the media would do that. And I expected I had this now I look back like, you know, it was a little bit naive, like idea that like in a time of crisis, people would like slow down and be like, OK, we have to see what's going on. No, there's actually systems in place in the media um, and in the in, in social media as well that get people uh, that, that actually make money by getting people riled up yeah. and even more addicted to sharing more of these stories and listening more and more to these news um, art, news um, programs and getting more and more afraid and keeping that television on for longer so they can watch more of those commercials. The system is set up to create fear. The system is set that, you know, our models that we're following that don't have like a balance to them, uh, a wise balancing within them, they, they're set up to make people afraid and addicted to their fear and sitting in anxiety, sitting in worry. Um, instead of having that present moment awareness and the equanimity, which we, we practice in mindfulness, like, okay, whatever comes, even if it's an incredibly deadly virus, let's stay in the present moment. Let's keep centered. Let's let our fight or flight responses kind of calm down so we can think uh, and, and be aligned in mind, body, spirit. So we can address this in a healthy way and, and uh, know that no matter happens, we're going to go forward. There's been terrible things that have happened in the history of humanity, and we can go forward. Ultimately, it ended up that COVID even wasn't as terrible as they were projecting it. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I know. And what's really interesting, as you were saying that, I was brought back to when I was working, because I was, was at the bedside in the PEDS ICU mm. through, co- through COVID um, up until May of 2022 at uh, UCSF Children's Hospital in Oakland. And I remember that in 2021, uh, there was all, it was like the fall of 2021. I remember I was actually traveling to visit my sister in Puerto Rico. And there was all this news about kids dying from COVID and oh, like this. And I was like, what the, wait a minute, like what's going on here? Like, and that was the, the kind of biggest wake up call for me because I was like, wait a minute, like, Every, and I have friends all over the country that are bedside and, you know, and it's like what was being projected by the media and what was being then internalized by the public who were not actually worked like, you know, were not on the front lines was just not in, was not the truth, was just not the truth, like literally just completely different story. And so that to me was like, okay, wait a minute. Now I have to really like, cause I know what's true because I'm part of this. And so to then hear that I really had to sit with it, like you said, and, and, and with that presence and be like, okay, if this is true, then what else is, is being, um, being shared that is complete and utter nonsense. And so, uh, so I was just brought back to that as you were sharing, because it was like, you know, we were, we have been so bombarded with these narratives and stories and, and then these systems that, um, we grow up in. I mean, like, let's take the education system and I'm, we're going to come back to your case because, I, but now we're just, <laughs> we're just taking like a side route. Um, but the, you know, talking about colonization, you know, a teacher of mine, one of my teachers, Dr. Rocio Rosales Mesa, she's one of my decolonial teachers. Um, she talks about the, the three headed colonial dragon that and it's really, really powerful. And she shares one of them is the education system. So there's three, there's new age spirituality, modern psychology, and the educational system. 
And and when she talks about the educational system, she really talks about that this is like our first entrance into indoctrination. Like when we're talking about, you know, the way like what you were alluding to, right? And and we're just, let's just say let, this is general public school education. We're not talking about Waldorf or all these, you know, other schools. Um, you know, we're, we're separated from our families. We're separated from nature. We have no autonomy. There's one authority at the, t- the front of the class. And we essentially don't have a, a voice and we don't have any control over what we're learning. And we're seen as these like empty um, vessels that, that they are just depositing, you know, knowledge into, right? And so it's just interesting to think about that, like as if that is our first entrance and then, you know, you bringing up this fear and this like fight or flight and not and us being scared to come to come forward when there is great um disruption and disharmony it's like it's no surprise then that we have this general culture of fearful people that are sitting in fight or flight which then means you can't even access you know like high levels of thinking right because the it's an amygdala hijack right and so it's like so so are we then even surprised and then we take it to the next step and this is what i would love to talk to you about like medical education because then we can even look back in history and talk about the rockefellers and what happened there and so like yeah, let's just dive into that because I feel like that really that really leads up to like, you know, your case and and this and and you advocating for autonomy is autonomy of physicians because we're continuing to have to come back and fight for these very basic things, you know, when we talk about what the role of a physician is, like that that sacredness, the art of healing and and which I don't feel many physicians actually practice today because they are working for these corporations like you're saying, you know. Yeah, and and then that uh, working for those corporations also led to them chilling their was part of the reason that they chilled their speech because now their hands are tied. They're in a secure situation where they're working for someone, but they have to follow the policy of the hospital. They have to follow the policy of this corporate like entity um uh that uh and, and nurses were doing the same nurses were doing yeah. the same, oh, yeah. same thing i mean i talked to so many of my friends at the bedside i mean majority of them were kind of like oh this was weird but like they were just kind of going along not questioning and then when i started asking questions there were the cup those couple nurses that friends of mine were like what the fuck is this this is <laughs> this is some this is really something is off here and yeah. then when and then when they mandated the vaccines that was like a whole nother you know story yeah. but like but definitely like i saw the self censoring i saw like you said that chilling speech you know really happened to people colleagues and doctors of mine that again i really respected and i was like wait a minute like why aren't you say i was so confused <laughs> yeah and so i started to then go and try to speak to my colleagues mostly on facebook i was belonging to a, a, a of physician Facebook groups, a couple of them. And um, I tried to have conversations, discussions. I found that, and this is part of the problem with social media, the people who disagree with you are the ones that usually respond to you and to like say, well, this is why you're wrong. And then with COVID, because it was so amped up, the conversation just was automatically like heightened with them like saying, you know, this was not on a face physician group, but on another one, I was commenting on my friend's Post that she said something about COVID, and then her friend replied back to me and said, "You're an idiot." It's like, what is going on? Like, people don't normally talk to me on Facebook like this. Like, friends of friends, like it just doesn't. It, it, what's happened, right? And so then on the physician Facebook groups, like I would try to have discussions about ethics. I would have to uh, 
have discussions about, you know, the the disability life years lost or the quality adjusted life years lost as a result of interventions like lockdowns, et cetera. And it was just met with like severe reactivity, negativity. You're going to kill people. I'm not interested in, I was like, well, it doesn't, so I was, I'd written, I'd written something about ethics during COVID and like the ethics of vaccine mandates. And um, somebody responded back and like, well, I disagree with you. And I was like, well, let's have a discussion about ethics. And she's like, well, I'm not interested in talking about ethics. Right. Like, oh, yeah. well, then, <laughs> what's yeah. your response to me? Number one, number two, you as a doctor mm-hmm. should be absolutely concerned about having a discussion about ethics because in an emergency, that's the principle to which we need to hold on to more than anything else. These principles become incredibly important uh, during uh, during emergencies, like right. the principle of ethics, principles of honesty, principle, and then you know, uh, letting and go know- of like do no harm do right? no harm and let's talk about them talk right. about them right instead of suppressing instead of maximize your uh dopamine hits in your brain because you're in fight or flight or you, or you just want the pleasure of like trying to squash anybody who disagrees with you and you're in a heightened state about, about it because of covid like and let's let's talk about these things that's also part of like undoing the colonial mindset mm-hmm. as well because it's about power it's about or for me, I call it like the sociopathic mindset. It's about power. It's about uh, pushing somebody else down to make your, instead of listening to them even, or making space to have these conversations. Yeah. So I was seeing this on my physician Facebook groups. And then I was just, I got tired of being attacked. And I was very scared because there was still a part of me that was afraid. And so I just kind of withdrew and became very small. There was an article in the New England Journal of Medicine about having a, a framework, an ethical framework for vaccine mandates in summer of 2020, summer of 2020. So this is pretty early, but I saw it in the New England Journal of Medicine. So a colleague of mine and I wrote a letter in response to this um, ethics of uh, uh, an ethical framework for vaccine mandates. We argued for like, you know, why isn't public, and we said it very eloquently, but like basically we're like, why aren't we talking about diet, exercise, nutrition? Public health is completely ignoring this. And this would be the perfect perfect right we talked about challenge and like potential uh disease being the possibility for at least a portion of the society to transmute into something more positive covid could have been an it was an incredibly missed opportunity by the public health arms of the united states government and just by doctors themselves like let alone not anybody not even government related to use it to create and promote systems of the populace more into exercise, talking about diet and um, reducing stress, getting excellent sleep, uh, healing your childhood traumas, like things like that. Like, let's get, let's get into, into that kind of discussion. So we wrote that letter. It's like, well, why aren't you talking about these basic things? Right. And then um, also, you know, we started getting into the, in the letter, we talked about the ethics of vaccine and New England Journal refused to print it. Wow. And I looked back and saw like how many other letters they printed about this art regarding, you know, in response to this article, where's the discussion, where's the debate, none. Last time I checked, there was none. So it was like, just blanket, this is how it's going to be. Mm-hmm. We're not even, and, and I started, I, I started seeing that and it was, it was really, really, really frightening that there was a narrative that was actually even promoted by the journals. Um, and then the social media companies were now starting to 
uh, uh, people. They said, we're going to follow. There was one head of one social media company said, we followed what the CDC and the World Health Organization say. Right. I'm starting to now question the CDC and the World Health Organization. At the same time, I was in this week, thank God for some sort of support. I was in this weekly group of really smart doctors, reporters, um, economists that we would meet once a week. It helped me with my sanity, like to talk about like what's going on in COVID versus and possibilities and just discussion, discussion, right? Instead of always reaching a conclusion, just just be open and listen. And and that made me realize, oh, there's a bigger picture. There's parts that I'm not seeing. Oh, the media is basically out and out lying to me, um, or some parts of the media are. Um, and that there's doctors' voices that are getting um, uh, censored. And we found that now, of course, um, with uh, Missouri versus Biden, the new court case that came out, uh, or not new, but they just, it was a recent ruling that showed that arms the federal government, especially the executive branch, the White House, the Surgeon General's office, several, several other branches, um, and the CDC, they actively pressured and colluded with tech companies to censor private Americans. And academic institutions were directly, several of them, and maybe even more, were directly involved in identifying people under the veil of targeting misinformation and disinformation, they, they, these, this struck the system of academics, government, and um, business actively went to censor people. And the court found enough evidence in the uh, communications between the government and the tech companies to say, yeah, this is, this is beyond what's, uh, you know, just suggesting things. This is into the part of, this is like getting into uh, First Amendment violations of, of citizens. So we know that that's happened. Like, and in this urgent, emergent situation, anything that the government does to pressure the tech company, I mean, you have to understand that that's, it, it, it's felt much more by the leadership in that tech company than if there wasn't an emergent situation. Right, right. Yeah, I, I just actually heard Matt Taibbi talking about this. Uh, so so it does ring a bell for sure and, and is of great concern. And 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 with regard to AB two zero nine eight, what happened? Um, that yeah, like where where what happened when it was passed, and and how did you move through that? So um, this is what in my testimony to Congress a few weeks ago, I talked about this about how the federal government's actions really had this downstream toxic momentum in other areas, including the states. Now, California went to the extreme. The state I'm from went to the extreme, and they brought out a slew of bills that really um, promoted kind of the biosurveillance state of medicine in the state of California, the um, censoring of physicians. Uh, They wanted to mandate the COVID vaccine for all children. Uh, there There was someone who was toying with the idea of, I think, mandating the COVID vaccine for all businesses like in order for them to stay open in California. I don't that I don't think that got much traction. But for now, for def- definitely what passed was we have a vaccine registry now. So the government knows exactly who's gotten vac- getting vaccinated, who's not, who's refusing. Um, we have a vaccine exemption registry now in California where you doctors now have to report who they write vaccine exemptions for. So you're, you're they're kind of controlling and behavior from a top down pr- approach. I did um, hear, I, I did actually talk to some doctors through that because, you know, I have like friends who, you know, are physicians that were saying, you know, well, now, you know, I can only write five exemptions a year and that's 
all exemptions. So all these kids that, you know, for years I've been writing exemptions for them for, you know, whatever other childhood vaccines that they couldn't take, you know, because they were at risk for whatnot. That's also included in this five. And mm. so they, they were all really scared. They were all there's just, there was so much fear of be of the uh, backlash for, for speaking to patients about what you, what you really believe is uh, good for them. You know, that's what I started seeing at, after this passed in 2022. Yeah. And so doctors have changed their behavior. They're not writing exemptions. So after AB 209, so AB 2098 was one of those um, bills that ended up getting passed and signed by the governor. It's basically, that any doctor who spreads disinformation or misinformation in the state of California about COVID um, uh, can get their license taken away. And their definition of misinformation, misinformation is just like lying and knowing you're lying to a patient, which really is unethical. So I'm not arguing with disinformation, but misinformation, their definition of misinformation was um, uh information contrary something to the effect of like information that's contrary uh that, that differs from consensus contrary to standard of care don't quote me on that but like basically it was like against consensus contrary to standard of care and it's that word consensus that was really dangerous because by then the federation of state medical boards that um is covers the whole nation had come out and said you know doctors have to follow you know consensus that was one of the things that they had mentioned and so then that makes it automatically you become afraid to be say anything that's not uh, going to be accepted as consensus. And so people started, doctors started chilling their speech because they were afraid of getting called out for not being a follower of consensus. And what is consensus? It's not even defined. There's informal consensus, which is just kind of the general opinion of doctors in a city, in a state, might be very different from another group of doctors in another area. And then there's formal consensus, which is formal published opinion, a bunch of doctors getting together, debating the evidence, figuring out where they all agree or mostly agree, and then publishing it, then not publishing the parts where they disagreed. And that's formal consensus opinion, for example, on whether or not to test for a certain genetic disease when someone presents with a stroke, right? Is it is it good to do or good not to do, right? For me in my life, I've gone, again, I put this in the court paperwork for AB 2098 when we filed the lawsuit, I have gone against informal consensus and formal consensus multiple times in my life. I went against formal consensus in the medical institution I was getting my care in when I got really sick. I did something opposite what they recommended, um, which later on those doctors said, oh, you know, maybe we should be doing this for all patients, not just you, right? So (laughs) if I hadn't done that, I I might be dead. And um, that's my doctor even told me that. And then, um, and I've gone against informal consensus as well. Um, when I stopped giving antibiotics after a certain type of injection, when all the doctors in my institution were still doing it, I mm-hmm. stopped six months prior. And then finally, six months later, they said, oh, let's do it. I'd already evaluated the emerging evidence. I'd already done some lab work myself. So it made sense. And I didn't want to put my patients anymore at risk. So my point is, just because someone is not following consensus doesn't mean they're not doing the right thing. Right. And it and to chill the speech of doctors that way prevents them from saying what they believe. It scares them into obedience and doing what the CDC wants them to do. And it prevents them from having open debate and discussion. Like you were saying about your friend, once you started talking to them, it came out into the open. Oh, other people think like me. But if yeah. everybody's keeping their mouth shut, yeah. then then you feel like you're the only one and you mm-hmm. stay small and afraid. And then the system just keeps going on and on. But once I started... And what I said to myself is, I am afraid. I feel I'm afraid. I feel like I'm small. 
but these laws are happening. What do I do? And I was feeling it's like I'm sitting in my room feeling really sorry. I was sitting in this room feeling really sorry for myself and feeling sorry for the state of the world and I was going. And then a part of me just said, just take one step forward. I texted my friend. I was like, what should I do? He's like, you got to get on Twitter. I wish I'd been on Twitter a long time before then because I found like, oh, there's other people who think like me, right? So I started speaking out, using my intellect, using my uh, knowledge as a doctor, and people started feeling good about it. I also got some haters. Let's not call them haters. People who disagreed with me and were very rude about it instead of being respectful, very reactionary. Um, And... uh, But I just said, I'm just going to not think about them. I'm just going to take steps forward. And I did. And as I did, um, the opportunity to file a lawsuit against AB 2098, the medical censorship bill, came in. And uh, I was really scared. But two years before, I had said to universe, I had said to God or universe or consciousness, I had said, I want to be the kind of person who's not afraid. I want to get, get that negative comments on the Internet and have people call me names or whatever, and just let it roll off my back. And I said that, I declared it. And over the two years, I worked on myself, you know, and then I think there was stuff that happened in a passive way too. But then I just took that step forward. Even though there was fear, I made friends with my fear, like we were taught to do in mindfulness, and I just sat with it. I said, I see you fear, but I'm going to take that step forward, and I'm going to sue. And so we sued, and uh, we, several months later, we went to court, the judge called the law nonsense. Wow. Nonsense, he said. He's an older gentleman. He had come to court, had done his work, was very thoughtful, very deep thinking. And he granted us what's called a preliminary injunction against the law, which means the government can't take um, negative action towards us if we don't follow the law. And then he said, well, I'll rule. Finally, he said, I'll rule by the end of the year. Um, but what's happened since is that the Gavin Newsom, who'd originally signed this terrible bill, uh, said that he told one of my friends a couple weeks ago that it was his idea to reappeal the bill and it should have never been passed in the first place. So now that COVID's kind of, you know, more or less over, um, he's trying to, and they are trying to kind of clean up, clean up house so they can continue on their path towards power. A new election. and, and a re-election, he wants to be president, he wants power. So, you know, the question is, well, if it shouldn't have never passed in the first place, why'd you sign why'd it? You sign it, yes. <laughs> Did that just happen recently? That... Yeah, it's just in the past couple of weeks. Yeah, okay. I think it was like last week that he signed, he signed the reappeal. It was done very quietly. They didn't want to, you know, without much, without any fanfare. And uh, they said, well, actually, we have, we have uh, the, the author of the bill said, you know, we already have systems in place now. With uh, to go after doctors who spread misinformation, disinformation. So I'm not. It was just a giant waste of time. Yeah, time yeah. waste of time, resources, and it was because. And this is going back to the idea of like power and money and um and influence and wanting to bend people to your will, uh, which is kind of that colonial way of thinking or the sociopathic way of thinking. It's bend people to your will. And not letting them speak. Yeah. Trying to control the narrative instead of having open debate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very, very dangerous. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, so, and and even coming back to the, you know, these these ethics and principles, right? Of of being a physician, right? Do no harm. And 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 then when you um 
and when we look at why it's so dangerous to say something like consensus and, you know, which actually, I mean, based on everything you're saying, it's, it almost sounds like the word consensus is, I mean, it's just so subjective and it's so, it's actually very non-scientific because if we're actually practicing as scientists, like we're always questioning, right? Like <laughs> science is always questioning itself and evolving and changing right? So it's like, how can there ever actually be consensus? Like you, like you were saying what you did for your own health journey saved your life, but it went against the consensus of what allopathic medicine was telling you to do. Right. So part of, yeah. Or or the hospital in which I was getting my care. Yeah. This episode is sponsored by Cultivating Self Corp, a 501c3 nonprofit public benefit charity that is actively supporting the mental, physical, and spiritual health of our healing practitioners, our doctors, our nurses, therapists, social workers, respiratory therapists, Reiki healers, body workers, acupuncturists, you name it. Healers in the community really need support right now. I know because I'm one of them and we are building community around regeneration, around thriving health and really supporting a vision for a new paradigm of health. Please check us out, www.cultivatingself.org. We've got some amazing programs. We facilitate transformational retreats around the country. We will be having an upcoming retreat in Hawaii, so stay tuned for details about that. I am also um, going to be facilitating a an event for the healthcare community in Santa Monica on October 26th. I received a micro grant for that. And so you can find details for that on the website on what's going on tab. And we also have um, some really awesome videos on our YouTube to support with um, sleep. We've got some sleep aids and just check out what we're doing connect with us if you know a healer that could use some support please do share again cultivating self.org we are a growing community of empowered and thriving healers and we are making moves so connect with us and enjoy the rest of the show one of my friends um who spoke out against lockdowns early on in a very, very vocal way. And uh, Dr. Fauci uh, and Dr. Francis Collins, or and Francis Collins was the head of the NIH, uh, emailed back and forth. And they basically, when they, when, when they heard that he'd spoken out, they, in an email between them, they had said, one of them emailed the other one said, we need a swift takedown of this fringe epidemiologist, or I'm paraphrasing, right? They called him, so they othered him, mm-hmm. fringe, mm-hmm. Um, uh, and they decided to create a strategy, or he did in his mind, reactively to uh, get get rid of him and minimize his voice mm-hmm. instead of being open and curious. And what's this guy really talking about? He was already. In, and so they, between themselves, uh, found a, were, were thinking about how do we silence this private citizen's voice? Who, by the way, happens to be an MD, PhD, <laughs> you know, yeah. in health policy. Right. So that's kind of like, again, that happened behind closed doors. We found out about it later that there were two members of government who were actively trying to find a way to censor somebody who was speaking as a private citizen. 
uh, it's frightening. And this, and, and, you know, I always like to think that people have good intentions and their intention was to save people. That's what I like to think. Obviously at the same time, I know that, you know, there's a reason Dr. Fauci is like, I think the highest paid employee in the United States government, something to that effect. Like, you know, he's very savvy and he's very savvy at using these systems and his knowledge of these systems to get ahead and be at the top and make a lot of money. He knows how to use the system to his advantage and how to, and and that goes back to, he's living in that colonialist system and he's found a way to maximize it. Yeah. It's that sociopathic behavior. And it's rewarded. And then we're going to put, and it's rewarded because the Mm -hmm. system rewards that. Yeah. I've seen that happen in academics on a smaller scale where I train, where, um, the 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 sociopathic behavior the, the the colonialist behavior was rewarded by um getting to the top of the department or uh you know getting the best or day or whatever um it's really frightening and what happens is the people who are afraid they don't speak up they don't stand up and so then the system grows bigger so what we have to do is we have to speak up and if you're not in a place where you feel comfortable, think about, well, what do I want to do? Okay, what skill set do I want to uh, accumulate or acquire to be able to do that? That's what I did, right? I'm too small. I'm too scared. I'm too afraid. It affects me too deeply when someone says something negative to me. I also don't like legal things. I don't know anything about legal, like how lawsuits are. That's so alien to me. Okay, well, I don't know that, but I want to get there. What do I need to do? Right. Part of that was taking care of myself and mind, body, spirit. So I was aligned. Um, that was strong, healthy, and and um, centered. And then another part of me was saying, okay, well, I can develop those skills. And then another part of me was just taking that step forward. Okay, I don't know too much about the legal system, but there's lawyers involved. They seem pretty trustworthy. I did some vetting. Let's take the step forward. Right. And uh, And so I would encourage people who want to get somewhere, but they don't feel like they can or they're afraid, to just see what skills they have, they, they can develop to get to that place. And then just take a tiny step forward to get there. Yeah. And then the next step will reveal the next step. And the next step will reveal the next step. Right. And, and really chunking it down in that way, like, like what you just said, like taking what's in front of you. And cause I feel like so much, so many times we get so far ahead of ourselves. And again, that is part of like that unlearning of, of this, the way that we've been indoctrinated through education and, 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 and really just taking the step because we can plan all we want, but you know, there's, there's a something else going on that's bigger. And we all know that, that usually that doesn't happen the way that we planned anyway. So just really being present to what's in front of you, I feel like is, is really, really great advice. And I wanted to read this quote uh, really quick, just kind of coming back to like this decal, this, decolonization movement um, that's happening. And, and to me, the way that I see it, and I'm still learning and, and, you know, like that's part of the, why this podcast exists is because like, I want to bring on like awesome people like you and like, let's unpack these ideas and really form, um, form that, that vision together of what, what it looks like, because it's, it's so multidimensional and um, we, Anyway, so I wanted to just read this quote because I feel like it, it's so relevant to what you were speaking about when we are talking about um, autonomy and um, and even your experiences uh, leaving Iran. And so this is a quote by Yellowbird, um, and it says, 
Decolonization is the intelligent, calculated, and active resistance to the forces of colonialism that perpetuate the subjugation and or exploitation of our minds, bodies, and lands, and it's the ultimate purpose of overturning the colonial structure and realizing indigenous liberation. And it's interesting because right there, you know, like exploitation of our minds, bodies, lands. And if we look at kind of every system today, you know, this is what we're seeing, right? You know, like the water, our waters, our our, our bodily autonomy, our education system. I mean, so many, so many things. And I'm just curious, like, what do you envision with regard to healthcare and medicine, you know, as a physician, like, what does it look like to have a truly decolonized healthcare system? And like, what does that mean to you? And, and, wow. and you know, whatever comes through, like, you know, there's just. <sighs> well, um, okay. So s- some of the ideas that I've been thinking about in order to help us achieve something where we're uh, decolonized truly, some of these ideas I've been thinking about are things like people having working in a framework of emotional intelligence, right? So people having those emotional intelligence skills um, and being able to be emotionally regulated, right? Be able to live in a place where they're um, not working from a place of reactivity, where they're living mostly in their parasympathetic Mm -hmm. um, and uh, being mindful, so they're mostly in the present moment and they're tuned to the other in front of them. And it's not even the other. They see them as part of themselves because we really are interconnected. And that goes back to us, you know, being in nature, not, you know, separate from nature. And um, to be in present moment with the other person and to really hear them and to care about them. So bringing in love into these relationships um and truly caring uh schedules and uh training for people to be living in with sustainable schedules that actually are appropriate for their unique neuropsychological needs for example uh it's really interesting elaine aron who's the person who coined the term highly sensitive person she wrote in one of her books that the one, one uh, career she would not recommend for a physician, for a highly sensitive person would be a physician because the way the practice of medicine is right now actually ends up that these highly sensitive people who actually have deep empathy capability and actually tend to be quite smart and uh, tend to be very deep thinking. Um, so they actually would be very beneficial to have in our medical system or as part of our medical system. She says, this system as it currently is actually keeps them from being able to be healthy. Mm-hmm. So we need to have systems where each individual's traits uh, are recognized as potential gifts that they can bring to the whole of the group, right? So, I mean, I, I even talk about sociopathic systems, but I, it's kind of like a quote unquote, because even the sociopath in my view, right? The whatever, the two, 4% of the true sociopath in our society, most of them, if they actually were taught about themselves, right, they would be much happier than they really are. But it's just because they can't function in our society because they don't understand empathy. They don't understand why someone's sad that someone's died. 
said, the parent could be like, well, my dear, you're a sociopath and that's just who you are. And that's wonderful because you're the kind of person who could go, go, go and not need as much time, time, for example, or, you know, not as deeply affected by these things and need like tons of rest. You can go if you want. We need someone to defend us against someone that wants to hurt us. You'd be perfect for that. So we need you and we honor your role in society. I'm kind of riffing here, but like for each person's needs and gifts to be valued. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are kind of th- themes that I've been thinking about in terms of how to really have healthy systems. Um, and uh, it really starts for me, and it starts and ends with love, love for the self, love for others, um, wanting real true health in terms of mind, body and spirit for each other and creating our systems based on that. Certainly having enough money to survive, I think, is really important. Um, And we know that socioeconomic status really affects health. uh, And it really prevents a lot of our patients from being able to achieve the ends that they need to. And race also plays a part of that separate from socioeconomic status. Um, So how do we actually have, create meaningful structures outside of the healthcare system so that people who are more at risk and vulnerable are lifted up while still promoting, uh, while still promoting the growth of ideas and not letting people become so comfortable that they stagnate, which can happen too if you're just Mm -hmm. comfortable and there's a steady stream of income coming at you. I'm thinking about these things. I don't have like a full overall answer for you, but these are themes about which I'm thinking. Yeah, I love that. I love that. It sounds like, you know, what you're envisioning is really this idea of the collective being supported and there being really a place for everyone, um, despite, like you said, your um, whether you're a highly sensitive person or maybe have some sociopathic tendencies and, and that really uplifting people's gifts. And I, I love that. I think that that's so beautiful. And, and, and when we think of, when we think about the system, something that always comes through for me and that I can't really help because like of my background in labor as like a union, uh, like a nurse rep and, and working very deeply in a bargaining team member, um, as a nurse as well, like, is 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 ownership like having a hospital or some sort of like some sort of healthcare center or wellness clinic whatever that's directly owned and operated by the people providing care like to me right like that just because right now, like even you were saying, right, that they're all 75% of doctors are working for corporations. They don't even, they have no voice, no autonomy. They, you know, they're, it's like, and the trickle down effects absolutely impact patient care. So how could that also be not only supportive for patients and, and providing potentially better patient outcomes, but also liberating for the, the caregivers themselves. And, and so I like visualize that. And there are a couple a couple uh, like therapy uh, cooperative models like that, like, you know, with like therapists, I think there's one in Brooklyn. Um, but I really see that as, as being like, Hey, let's just build our own system. And maybe even creating like membership around it or something and, and scholarships for people who don't, and how it's like, then how do we create access for people who can't afford it while we're working within the system that has these limitations around, co- you know, everything costs so much around health. So, so that's one thing. And and another thing I wanted to share with you, which is 
super has been super inspiring for me is this um, idea of like farm clinics, like clinics and care centers that are on farms that really get us connected to nature and to the land and returning to our relationship to mother. Oh, it's like, what a concept, right? <laughs> and, and so, and I feel like that in itself is such a huge part of our dis-ease and imbalance is like our disconnection, literally like our disconnection cord from the mother and how just getting our hands in the soil is going to make our gut, you know, our gut microbiome better and all of these things. It's like, why not? Why are we doing more of that, you know, or gardens and, and urban places and just in schools. I, th- I feel like it's, the solutions are just so simple, you know? <laughs> that would be a really elegant solution too. I actually have a friend of mine. They went to private practice model, he and his wife, and their garden for their um, health clinic, their independent is this almost the same footprint as their health, you know, as their clinic, as their medical clinic. And they invite people to come early or stay later in the garden and, and be, I mean, talk about like being connected to nature and then the inside of their clinic is gorgeous too. But I I love that idea. I love that idea. We've set up these buildings, these modern day medical facilities for efficiency um, supposedly, but it's really not efficient, um, in terms of feeding the mind, body, spirit. And there's so much more evidence now that like the emotional health of the, the being, especially for more sensitive people, their emotional health and wellness really affects their physical manifestation of disease. And even so, like the family members who are there too, right. You know, having to support, like, uh, you know, being able to, and even being able to feed the patients, the food that are, is growing from the garden. Cause we all know hospital food is shit. It's horrible. Like it's all highly processed. And then like, wait a minute, you're giving this to people who are sick. Whoa. Like that was a huge red flag for me <laughs> years ago, you know, but yeah, imagine like feeding the people with that and, and just creating and deepening that connection because and, and even like you said, not even, not being in boxes, having natural light, you know, everything is so sterile that we're, we're so used to. And, and, and it really, they, I mean, they have studied this too, you know, I think, and, and many different patient populations, but I know of a study that was in like post-surgical patients that had better pa- recovery, uh, recovery times after being in a room with a window, which <laughs> is like so basic. Wow. Wow. That's beautiful. Yeah. So, so, so much possibility and that I would, oh, so we'll have to talk about that. Then. Yeah. I'm writing all this down too. So I can go read up on it. This is a great conversation. Yay. I wanted to ask you a question because I think it's really interesting. One of the conversations that I've heard around people who are interested in the idea of decolonizing medicine in the argument for with regard to vaccine mandates mm-hmm. is that some people who are in the decolonization camp actually believe that ma- vaccine mandates um, are good and people who don't believe in vaccine mandates um, are 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 being incredibly selfish, right? So they frame it in the, the idea of selfish. And so if you're really part of a community and loving each other, that you would be incredible, like you, there's an element of being selfless and, and, and doing it for the greater good. Um, for me, that's actually part of the colonialist mindset, right? Where you put your health above other people's autonomy that's one way to look at it. I mean, and for me, I'm thinking about like medical ethics itself. Like for me, from a medical ethics standpoint, um, aside from decolonization, like medical ethics itself, me, very clearly that vaccine mandates are unethical. 
um, especially with this new technology that we have, which is not like an inoculation in George Washington's time for smallpox, it's completely different. And it's for a disease for, with a much lower infectious fatality rate. So like, which people don't even get into the weeds of this kinds of conversation, right? They're just like, yes, we're for it or you're against it. But I'd love to get your idea on, on the colonialist decolonization slash versus decolonization mindset of our vaccine mandates. Yeah, uh, I'm so grateful for this question because this is something that I also struggle with in this movement, uh, given that I, I, I believe that that too is a colonialist uh, perspective to mandate anything. And, and so for me, that already is stripping us away from sovereignty, our um, connection of and understanding of our own ways of healing, our ancestral ways of healing. And I, I, I mean, don't, I've been getting vaccines my whole life, like, <laughs> you know, like at the hospital, I have to get the flu every year. And, and when this vaccine rolled out for me, this mandate as being a nurse in California, I was like, what is going on here? This is, um, this is dangerous. And partly because we had already had COVID, all of us, natural immunity is a thing. (laughs) We've all been taught it. And, and so for me, it didn't make any sense. And so I also had a pre-existing condition that I was concerned for myself and my health with this new technology, as you shared, and it being only authorized um, for emergency use and not, and not, they're not being like the robust data that we have around other vaccines. And so for me, as somebody who has always been uh, very, very, you know, I I mean, I'm not pro or anti anything. I'm just, uh, I'm just, I just want people to be informed. And so for me, that was also a huge red flag that I didn't feel like people were actually informed. Um, so when, and when we talk about the kids, we were having kids come in to the hospital with Guillain-Barre, with myocarditis, like these things were happening in the PICU. And I made myself small, similarly, similarly to you and didn't say anything. But when I, but in my heart of hearts, I knew that something was off. So, so I did what I needed to do to protect my health and to really advocate for myself and was able to get an exemption. And by again, that, which was difficult because it was like all that in that time frame, people were like, I'm not writing exemptions and this and that. And luckily I had, I, a doctor was like looking at my medical history and said, yeah, I'm going to write this for you. And so, um, but I still had to get tested twice a week to go to work. I still like, <laughs> like, and then as things progressed, it became the crazy thing was like, um, when, when, when they were like, you can still come to work if you have COVID. It's like, wait a minute here. What the, again. So I am all about people doing what they need to do for themselves. I don't, and and so for me that makes mandates unethical and i and i do too struggle because i am a, a very aware that people in this camp of decolonization are saying those things like what you're what you just read and and so i i too feel that it's important to 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 dive deeper into the nuances and also something that i was bringing up a lot in those spaces when this was happening because um I was bringing up the fact that like, wait a minute here, I have ancestors who have been experimented on by this 
regime, when we talk about experimentation of people in Puerto Rico, when we talk about, it's like, it goes deep, really deep, you know, for me. And so, so again, it's not a black and white thing. It's just these things that we are totally ignoring. And then we've moralized this issue and further polarized the, the population into being like, you're a bad person because you didn't do this. And, but we're not talking about it. So I'm, yeah. So I, it's, it's really complex, but I also feel that um, for me, when I started to see what was really concerning for me, um, cause again, like nobody, there were a few people that I worked with who knew that I didn't get the vaccine and, um, and everyone else just assumes that you did because you're still working. Right. And you, everybody's wearing a mask and all this stuff. And, but I remember taking care of patients who had also had not been vaccinated, whether it was like a family member or something and, and them literally being treated differently by, by colleagues, by, by good people. And I, I talk about this kind of like in a little snippet when I go through, when I uh, read a clip out of a book in a past episode, but being treated differently. Um, and also just the talk behind the scenes in the break room. And to me, there's no way that there isn't a ripple effect of that, of that mindset. And that whether they're actually verbalizing it to the patient in the room is doesn't even matter because they've already, that thought's already gone out. It's been received by the patient and the family. And so that definitely affects patient care in my mind. So the judgment, the, again, the moralizing of this issue, it just became such a problem. And so I, I, that was one of the reasons why I was like, this is no longer aligned for me, like to show up and be in this space. I love what I do. And also like, how can I continue to be part of the system and follow my truth and open up the throat and speak my truth? if they're going to fire me, because I, they were about to fire me for, with the, I didn't come with a, with an exemption. Wow. Wow. I mean, imagine emotional toll. I mean, just talking about this from an intellectual point of view, I hear it all. And I think this is insanity, right? What you had to go through, but then also intellect aside, the emotional toll that it takes on the body, the emotional toll that it takes in the, 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 the systems of the body, right? The heart rate, the, the blood pressure, the tension that you're holding, the tension you hold in your muscles, the, the constant, like it's in your mind, what are they going to do, right? This hypervigilancy that gets created, that is a setup for disease. And that's another thing that I would like to hold the people in the government of California who promoted the lockdowns and promoted the mandates, including Gavin Newsom, who man- wanted to mandate it for all children in order to attend school, public and private, is you created in addition to... Uh, fractured social health you created internal tension yeah. and then the person's walking around with internal tension then lash out at their child or they lash out at their spouse so then you're, you're it's creating compounding problems in addition to the high blood pressure in the person the headache the you know it manifests in the body the somatic stuff yeah. um, so it, it's multi-dimensional multifactorial here yeah. the the yeah. the the consequences so i mean i kind of went through that myself and so i i feel it but then just you talking about it and like thinking about, Oh, I get fired for that. That's, that's frightening. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, there was a point where I was like, okay, I guess I'm done with this. Uh, you know, like when I told you I was traveling, I was, I almost was like, I guess I'm not, maybe I shouldn't even come back because 
what's the point? You know, like I've got to do something else. And it was, and, it, and then it was like here, here we're hearing, oh, there's nursing shortage and all stuff. Meanwhile, all these nurses and doctors are getting fired for these ridiculous mandates when it's like, everybody's already had COVID. Everyone's taking the precautions they need. And everyone's very, very aware of what's going on. And, and this is all coming down from the CDC, an organization that at the beginning of the pandemic told us to come to work with bandanas on our face because there wasn't enough PPE. So it's like, mm. to me, things were very clear very early on. And I just continued to like sit back, observe and also, but continued had, like you were saying, like exhausted, burnt out. We were out in the streets, like picketing for PPE on MLK and Oakland. Nobody was helping us out. Like, you know, we were t- being told to reuse our PPE and it was like, this goes against all of our infectious disease protocols that we've ever had to, oh, but we're in a pandemic. Oh, so it's okay. And it's like, so we're continuing to put ourselves on the line. And then at the end of the day, we're disposable like that. And so to me, it's like, that's colonialization at its finest. And so when we completely, uh, it completely disregard personal sovereignty and, and, you know, it is just, it's really, it was an eye opener for me. You know, I had been feeling the, the imbalances prior and that again, like I, like I shared earlier when we were talking, it was like, you can't unsee those things. You know, I already knew that the system itself was toxic and kind of created environments that, that lead to physician burnout and for, you know, and nurse suicide. And then for that, for the, all of the things that happened during COVID to just kind of sequentially happened the way that they did was just like, oh, this is so, so obvious to me. And it's not that to me that it's not that it was necessarily, I'm not saying like it was um, a malicious, like calculated thing. Maybe it was, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not here to say that. I just know like that I was on the impact end. And to me, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So, so like whatever these public health, I, health officials. Like I, I was like in the camp of you. I'm like, why aren't we talking about diet? Why aren't we talking about being outside together and being in the sun? We already know now, okay, now the studies are showing like low levels of vitamin D lead to this. So why aren't we talking about these things? And there's only one answer. And so when there's only one option and we remove options from people, to me, that is, that is colonizer mindset right there. So I, I would love to have more discussions with the other camp about this and dive deeper into it because that I feel like is part of decolonizing our minds and, and the education system that perpetuates that that's, you know, if we're all coming out of this system of education that we know again was hijacked by the Rockefellers, like to, to create. Yeah. We have to talk about that too. Maybe another podcast. I know That's a huge thing too. That's a big one. Yeah. So, you know, like, like if we don't know where we come from, like how can we actually do anything about it? And I think that that's the biggest thing is education and understanding the history, the legacy of, especially in medicine um, and the impact it has had on black indigenous people of color. So, so that is like, yeah. So thank you for that question. I love <laughs> Well, thank you so much for your answer. And uh, it gave me a lot to think about. It's been something that's in, that's been on my mind, right? How do you marry that? But um, it's also, you know, it, looking, being able to hold things at the same time and think that they're opposing, but they're actually not opposing, right? The right. decolonization actually goes very, very well with the idea of bodily sovereignty. Absolutely. Is that in your mind different than new age spirituality? 
is new age because, you know, I usually think about bodily sovereignty and the people who promote it being kind of that new age spiritualist way of thinking. But is the con- do you know if the concept of bodily sovereignty is actually something that came even before the new age spirituality and is actually related to um, something? I mean, I don't know, but this would be something good for us to investigate. Like, where, yeah. where historically has the bo- concept of bodily sovereignty come from? I mean, we know that in our colonized systems, like, it, it hasn't been, uh, and especially in the Western medical model, it has not been something that uh, has been promoted, right? It used to be even up yeah. to a few, you know, decade or two ago, you would worship at the altar of the doctor and you would just yeah. do whatever the doctor said. You didn't yeah. even think twice to question or wonder, is this really what's best for me? Or does this doctor even know what's best for me? Or actually, I don't yeah. want to do this. Do I have to speak up? Right. right? So right. I know in our Western allopathic models, bodily sovereignty is kind of a new newer right um uh idea and it goes back to even oh we didn't even talk about this but like even in the 1800s in california government uh academics and uh philanthropy and rich people were active in the california eugenics movement Mm -hmm. to try Mm -hmm. to sterilize people that they this is in the 1800s to try to sterilize people that they felt would not be good for um the future of the populace and that 1800s eugenics movement in california then fed the holocaust of the 1930s and 40s we have not even dealt with that as our you know our history our Our history colonized history and so you know in california we keep replaying these ideas because we Mm -hmm. haven't processed the past Mm -hmm. and we don't see it linked to this so Mm -hmm. um uh just this is a whole other thing to, for, to think about. Thank you for bringing that one up because that, <laughs> yes, I mean, we again we're talking about history, and you know, we should just do that. It'd be fun to do an episode where we just like dive into history and we go through like a timeline. But it's because as I have uh, been diving into this work myself, especially more so since I left the bedside, mm. um. I have been learning so much that was never taught to me in nursing school. Um, and I know is not in medical education as well. I mean, I know that there's like some, I mean, again, father of modern gynecology, Marion Sims, you know, who's experimenting on his slaves. Uh, I mean, there's just so much. And so I do think we have to know where we come from so that we don't repeat it. Like you said, that California, we're just continuing to repeat these cycles of oppression and removing, um, removing choice from people and what they feel like is best for themselves. And uh, yeah, I just, I, and, and in terms of your question about new age spirituality, I'm not sure where that comes from. And, and the way that my teacher talks about new age spirituality, um, as it being, as it being a, one of those like colonial dragon heads that she says so beautifully is, uh, she really talks about it more in the sense of like spiritual bypassing and really like only being in the light and, um, and, and ignoring the shadow and not integrating the shadow because then we ignore that the suffering exists. And so we therefore don't do anything about it. And so it's really about shadow work, you know, and she talks about that, the need for our own shadow work and that there are a lot of people that are showing up in these, in these decolonizing spaces who, who are saying all the right things, but they don't embody it. And they're still showing up in colonial ways. 
And so we can, can, you know, continue unpacking that, but to, but that's like, I think her, you know, when I was bringing that up, that's what she was kind of saying is like, there's spiritual, and I've been seeing this like so much as like being in the world in the spirituality stuff in my own journey, you know, connecting to spirit. Oh yeah. It's like all love and light. And it's like, but wait, what are you doing in the world with all of that? You know, because there's, I don't know. So No, that really helps me actually think about it in a different way. So the new age spirituality that we're talking, that you're talking about is actually about the spiritual bypassing and only being in the positive, ignoring the darkness, ignoring the suffering of others, bypassing. That actually helps me a lot. And it's the idea of a vaccine mandate causing that emotional suffering, the physical suffering, the somatic symptoms that we're talking about is actually very different than that, right? Because spiritual, the new age spirituality, spirituality bypassing, you would be ignoring the suffering that exists because of a vaccine mandate. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're like, oh, it's just, okay. oh my like, God. it's all yeah. love and it's all love and light. And oh, we can just, you know, meditate this away and kind of thing. And it's the same right. idea as like throwing, throwing uh, these mindfulness uh, programs into hospitals, but yet not addressing the hierarchy, yes. the hierarchy, the systems, the administrators who aren't participating and doing and are not embodied in the work. And so that's so then you expect all of your workers to do it. It's just so hypocritical, right. you know, so right. it's like we're right. not we're not unraveling the actual problem or going like, you know, as they say, upstream, <laughs> right. upstream. Yeah. we're just dealing with the Right. You change, you change, yeah, you, you get change. better. Right. Yeah. It's, but that's part of that individualized I, I, thinking, which is yeah. not concerned with the collective. Right. So. so in this case, the vaccine mandate, if you're really concerned about the collective, you would be concerned about if you really truly are decolonized, you would be creating space and listening and investigating and asking deeper questions of the people who don't want to get vaccinated. And you yeah. would actually, you would actually not ignore that they have suffering. Exactly. You would not try to then other them and tell them they're, you know, hurting humanity and they're, you know, labeling them with names and yeah. uh, slurs, et cetera. Yeah, um, I think it's really holding space, like you just said uh, so beautifully. It, it really is holding space for what Jung says is the tension of the opposites, you know, and like and and being able to as an as a physician as a as a medical educator as a nurse or healthcare practitioner or healer to hold space for that suffering and that story and while you may not make that choice for yourself or your or maybe not want that for your family and really hope that somebody makes a different decision to also not be judging them for it and to also understand that there's deeper things and that through education in this space and also just like allowing that collective wisdom to come through because they also have wisdom to offer too. That's what we forget, you know, with like in these, again, in these systems that like our patients, they bring so much wisdom. I've learned so many great things from my patients. <laughs> yeah. I've learned so much. I've become more mature as a result of my patients uh, talking to me about maybe even changing some of my manner. I've mm. developed um, my, uh, uh, joy. I've learned some spiritual lessons. I've learned political lessons from them. I mean, it's an interdependence, right? Yeah. It's not, it's not just, okay. I so that, that would be, that would be the, the, the a sad view of it that I'm just yeah. here. I'm going to serve you, give you your service and leave. Right. Yeah. But th- there's an interdependence here between the patient and the physician that can take both to great heights. 
Yeah. Oh God, yeah. we can talk forever. I this know. Is so great. <laughs> so amazing. I know. Thanks so much, yeah. Azadeh. And and thank you for living up to your very powerful and and right now just like that freedom, your name. Your name literally means freedom. That is just like I have chicken skin, you know, just thinking about that. And, and so thank you for, for living up to that and bringing the knowledge and wisdom of your ancestors here into the space with us and sharing. And I, I definitely would love to have you back on the show and, um, and dive deeper into some of these. Thank you so much. I'd love to be back. This was such a, a blessing. I learned a lot and I hope that it would serve the audience and that we can take these ideas and use, you know, everybody can take little snippets and use it in their own life and, and, and grow uh, the movement, grow awareness and, uh, and create space for these kinds of conversations. Yes, I really, absolutely. I really appreciate you making uh, this, this podcast and creating this space for us to talk today. Thank you so much. And, and what is the best way I'd love like for listeners to follow you? Is there a, a best way to stay connected to your work and, and what's going on with you? Yeah, sure. You guys can check me out and um, follow me on Twitter. I'm at Azadeh Khatibi, A-Z-A-D-E-H-K-H-A-T-I-B-I. And on Instagram, I'm at Dr. Azadeh Khatibi. I'm also on Facebook as well, at Azadeh Khatibi, M-D-M-S-M-P-H. That's what I'm under. And I'm making a film about this freedom journey and kind of exploring more of the themes that we've discussed and, and really and, and really connecting it to the increasing biomedical surveillance state mm. um, and the history of what happened in government before COVID that really potentiated the censorship model and um, the surveillance models that have come as a result um, of COVID happening. And uh, so you can follow along as well for information about the film that we're creating. Oh, great. Okay. So that information on the film will be on your social yeah, media. Yeah, we'll share it over time. Okay. Yeah, we'll share it over time. And uh, I have another lawsuit for uh, First Amendment violations in the state of California against AB 241. Oh, you know, I just on a roll here. I could just sit and garden. That would be really awesome. Love to go back to doing that more. But for some reason, California just keeps violating the First Amendment rights of physicians that I have to step up. Oh, and thank and thank you for that. Thank God for that. <laughs> Stepping up. <laughs> oh man. All right. Okay. Thank you so much again for joining. And we'll we'll see you soon. Yeah. Many blessings to you and all of your listeners. God bless. I hope y'all enjoyed the show as much as I did. That was super powerful for me and almost felt like a therapy session. So <laughs> Shout out again to Dr. Azadeh for holding space, holding it down, sharing her wisdom and really living up to her name of freedom. So please check out the show notes to stay connected to her work and what she's up to and also cultivatingself.org, our show sponsor. We'll have the link in the show notes to stay connected, share with healers in your life. And if you're a healer, check us out, see what we're up to. There's always stuff going on and ways to get involved. And if you know of anyone who would be a good guest, please feel free to reach out and also subscribe, like, comment, stay connected. Thanks for listening. Music for today's show is brought to you by our resident conscious rapper and hip-hop artist, Universal Knowledge. Please connect with him and his beautiful art on Instagram. Again, Universal Knowledge, all one word. 